If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Isaiah 54, and we will read the whole chapter. Isaiah 54. This is the word of the Lord. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud for you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate places, the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. And that you would use the preaching of your word to shepherd us. That by it you would shepherd your flock. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my in-laws left Manitoba at about 5 o'clock this morning, which means by this time they're, they were heading west, so they're not in the province anymore, so I feel safe telling this story. When I uh, had enough courage to propose to Lana, I first had to go through her father, Ron. And so I set up a meeting with him in which I asked for his daughter's hand in marriage. Um... And I'd seen movies, I'd seen how this is supposed to work. He's supposed to say, this is great, we're so happy about this, absolutely yes, hug, handshake, hug, look you in the eye, that sort of a thing. Some of that happened. What also happened is that he asked me to prepare a budget for him to review before he would say yes. Why would he have done that? 
I did prepare that budget, and it was uh, abysmal, and uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't even look at it. He just wanted me to do this. What was he having in mind? Why would he want this? Well, first of all, he loved his daughter. He knew that the husband which she would choose, which he would give her to, this would have a great impact on her life. To use some of the words of Isaiah here, he wanted to know if it would be a shame for her to marry this man. And if this man would somehow shame her, if he intended to take care of her, whether he was able to or not. And we see some of this in this passage. Last week we read of the most wonderful passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. And where the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the Servant of God, the Messiah... 700 years-ish before he comes, tells us how he would win a bride, how he would purchase her with his own bride, how he would take her punishment, how he would buy her out of slavery and not just make her his slave, but, but make her his beloved wife, how he would take care of absolutely everything for her. Isaiah 54 tells us the results of this marriage. What does this bride have to look forward to? What is it going to look like to be the bride of this wonderful man? And as we've read already Isaiah 54, I think you can tell that he is a much more capable husband than the young man who approached Ron Kaliba and asked for his daughter. The price that was paid for the family of God we looked at last week, which was the very blood of Christ, the Son of God. And now we get to move into the inheritance that he shares with his bride, the church, and his children. What is the future that you are giving to this woman and the children that you give to her? This is the question that is being asked and answered of the Messiah, the husband of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at our first point, which we're going to get from the first three verses. We're going to call it this. The house of the servant's bride fills the earth with children born from above. Let's see this. Isaiah 54, 1 to 3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Thus far God's word. First of all, we've got to see here that, that Zion, which is the, the capital city of the people of God, also called Jerusalem, Zion is, is, is called a barren woman, a barren one. And what is, it, what is meant by that? Why would God call here, why would he call her a barren woman? Well, first of all, we see that she's unable to produce the Redeemer. She's unable to produce, just produce naturally, a son who would rescue her from all of the terrible things that she has experienced, all of the sin of the people of God. She's not yet been able to produce a son who is able to redeem and save her. Not only that, she's barren in the sense that she's unable to produce naturally children of God. Try as she might, Israel is not able to produce naturally children of God where there would be a, a child born to the Israelite nation, and they say that because it is born to the Israelite nation, that child is automatically a child of God. We read in John chapter 1 
that the only way to become a child of God is by faith in the gospel. It's something that comes supernaturally. It's not something that comes by natural birth. Nobody is born a child of God. In fact, Scripture says that we are born as children of wrath. That we are born as the enemies of God. We're born as dead in our sin. And that was true in the nation of Israel, the Old Testament church, as it is today. Israel was unable to produce naturally sons for God, children for God. She's also barren in the sense that she was unable to produce sons who could keep the inheritance and keep the land. Israel, on her own, was unable to do the things that needed to be done. But yet here we see that there's more children. She's going to have more children. Zion's going to have more children than the one who was married. Now, this doesn't mean that she's going to be an unwed mother. What is this saying? It's comparing natural birth to supernatural birth. We read, first of all, um, in John chapter 3, that this is, this is obviously talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, 31, speaks of how Christ is the heir. He is the son given to Israel that comes from above. If you remember Isaiah chapter 9, already in the book of Isaiah, long before John was written, Isaiah 9 verse, verse 6 says, For to us a son is born, a child is given. Israel would not be able to produce a redeemer for herself. She'd have to be given one from above. And this is exactly what the book of John tells us happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a redeemer. But not only that, any children of God that would be born to Zion, to Israel, to the church, would be born from above, be born supernaturally, we already saw this in Isaiah 49, verse 20. Uh, he says, The children of your bereavement will yet say in your, your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, This is God speaking to Zion. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Uh, who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? And the idea here is that not only did Israel need, did Zion, the people of God, the covenant people of God, not only did they need a son to be given to them to save them, if there would be any children of God within Zion, they too would have to be born supernaturally. Not simply by the will of men, not by the will of an earthly father, a father who has the idea, I want to have children, I'm going to marry a woman, we are going to conceive a child. But these would be born by the will of God. We see this in John chapter 1. You're not alive simply because you were born. You're not alive simply because you were born. Ephesians 2 says that we were born dead in our sins. Simply because you are alive, just simply because you're born doesn't mean you're alive. We're born dead in our sin. Neither are we children of God simply because we are born to human children. We see this in John chapter 1. The gift of the gospel is that somebody would become a son or daughter of God. This is something that has to be given to you. It requires supernatural birth. You've maybe heard the phrase, you must be born again. You must be born from above. 
Dear friends, if you have not put your faith in Christ, you are not a child of God. And nor are you alive spiritually. You're dead in your sin and you are a child of wrath. And yet this, this passage promises that you can become a child of God. You can become alive by faith in the son that he gave, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you noticed that this woman is called, the Zion, the people of God, is personified as a woman, is called to enlarge her tent. Did you see that? Enlarge your tent. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. There's no boundaries. There's no place that the people of God, uh, uh, personified as a person, as Zion, this bride, there's no boundaries. The place of her tent, her, her home, her house that she enjoys with her husband, the Lord God, has no borders. There's no borders. It extends to all the corners of the earth. That means there's no boundaries, no border to fear. Right Inside these boundaries, I am safe and I can enjoy the safety that belongs to being the, the wife of the Messiah. And over there, we should not be there because that will put us in danger. There's no borders to fear, but there's also no borders to respect. There's no borders to respect like over here, yes, this belongs to the Lord, but I shouldn't offend people by being the bride of Christ over here. There's no borders to fear where the Lord will not be with us as the bride of Christ. And there's no borders to respect. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Isaiah 54, the people of God, to the people of God is prophesied that when the Messiah comes, the borders, the boundaries, the extent of the household of God will reach to the ends of the earth and will respect no borders. And so what does he say? Do not hold back. Spread out. The Messiah will take people, not just from the people of Israel as his children. He will take them from every tribe, tongue, and language, every single nation. He will take these people from. And we see there's an already and a not yet to this prophecy. Look at the already. First of all, the church Zion will spread to all nations. And certainly she has already. No respecting any boundaries. We see this already in the book of Acts. The apostles didn't respect any boundaries. Oh, we can't go outside of Israel. No, they went to the nations. And after that, the church went to more nations and to more nations and to more nations and to more nations. Anywhere you go on the earth, wherever you put your feet, you can say, this is Christ's land. This is his land. This is his earth. There are people in every place who are predestined to be your siblings. There's no place on earth where you do not have people who are predestined to be your siblings. And so here the church is told 700 years before Christ comes, go get them. How do we get them? How is it that the people of God, the siblings of the church, how is that that they are gathered? By the preaching of this gospel. 
by the proclaiming that a son was given to Israel, a savior sent from heaven, and he died for the sins of the church, and he rose from the dead. No boundaries. No boundaries to fear. Oh, outside, over here the Lord won't be with us. And no boundaries to respect. Nobody gets to claim, oh, that land does not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the already. But there is a not yet. There is a future fulfillment of this because when Christ returns, when all his sons and daughters that would have been purchased by his blood are gathered by the gospel, there will be no question as to whose land there is. Every single person who's left on the earth will be his children, his family, his offspring, the children of Zion, the children of the church. We look forward to the day when the church, the family, the household of God spreads around the whole earth and that is all that exists, the church and her children. What is the response? What is the response that Israel is called to do in hearing this news? Sing. To sing. This is the, re- the proper response to hearing that though we were weak and sinful and are weak and sinful, though we have no hope in ourselves, though we were unable to produce any salvation in ourselves, unable to gain an inheritance from the Lord. Some people hear this message and are greatly offended by it, angered by it, repulsed by it. But dear church, what is Zion called to do? What is the church called to do? We hear this terrible news that we cannot save ourselves and we cannot gain anything good from God. We can't gain an inheritance from God, but God has given the church a husband who himself has a great inheritance that he shares perfectly and completely with us, what is our response? To sing. Sing. We who once were enemies of God have become his household, his beloved children, and he loved us while we were his enemies to do this for us. And so we sing. We take joy in this. We praise him for it. This is good to do. Singing is one of the ways in which we enjoy joy. How do you enjoy good food? Just by putting it on the table? No, you enjoy, you take joy in good food by eating it. How do you enjoy salvation? Well, there's many ways, but one of them, one of the ways that we enjoy joy is by singing. Sing together, Zion. And that's why whenever Zion gets together, what is Zion supposed to do? Sing. That's why when Zion got together this morning, what did we do? We sing. We take delight in the husband of the church, whose inheritance we share. When Christ would talk with the Father before he purchased the church, and he showed that financial plan, it was a lot better than Derek with Ron. We enjoy his inheritance. We don't earn it ourselves. We enjoy the inheritance of our husband. Our second point, we're going to get from verses 4 to 10, is this. The exile was the last time in which the Lord would cause Zion to taste the shame of forsakenness. Let's read this in 4 to 10. 
Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will not forget, sorry, you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with the everlasting love I, have, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the day of Noah, days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Thus far God's word. This is all good news. Zion is told that she's going to be given a husband with a great inheritance that she doesn't have to earn, but that she just gets to enjoy by virtue of the fact that she is his wife. But it begs the question, when is this going to end? It's wonderful, but when is it going to end? See, Zion had heard of the reigns of King David and Solomon, the great and glorious reigns of David and Solomon, the splendor and wealth and riches and peace that existed because of the sons of David, David and his sons at that time. They heard about these things. And yet now they're living in Zion and they're hearing of this is coming to an end, great destruction. They're going to lose Zion. They're going to be taken away to exile. And God's saying, I am going to do this. And so you could see, they hear of Isaiah 53, the Redeemer's going to come. He's going to purchase you with his blood. He's going to be your husband. He's going to share his inheritance. And they're like, well, okay. How long is that going to last? Until we lose that again. We've lost it before. Are we going to lose it again? And first we see here, God is not saying, the exile wasn't my idea, you can't blame me for it. He's saying the exile was a temporary punishment. It was something he did. It was deserved. He says that. It was deserved. It was because of your sin. He also says it wasn't an abandonment, but it was the experience of abandonment. It showed the truth that Zion and her natural sons couldn't keep the land. It showed that being a natural descendant of Abraham guarantees you nothing. So the exile was deserved, it was God's idea, it was temporary. But we also learn here that the exile will never be repeated for Zion. What illustration does God give here in this passage to demonstrate to Zion, this is not going to happen again. I will never even give you the temporary experience of abandonment. I will never even temporarily set you aside. This is not happening again. What illustration did he give for that? Noah, the days of Noah. If you remember that the days of Noah, before, before Noah comes, the earth is filled with wickedness. And the Bible says it was only evil and continually from the hearts of men. And then God sends a great judgment on the earth. He sends a flood that's going to destroy absolutely everything on the earth. And he would save just Noah and Noah's family in the ark. And afterward, God swore not that it was wrong for him to do it. Not that the world didn't deserve it. But he swore that he would never do it again. 
And what did he mark it with? What did he mark his promise with? The rainbow. Dear brothers and sisters, every single time you see the rainbow in the sky, you know that never again will the Lord destroy the earth with a flood. But you know what you can also be remember? We remember, never again will the Lord set aside Zion, even temporarily. Never again will he, set, he, he, will he say to the church, I'm going to set you aside and give you the experience of abandonment. He said, this is as the days of Noah. I will never, ever, 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 ever do that again. So how, what does this mean then for us? It means that true believers will never be lost. It means that all of the people who are actually added to Zion, to the actual people of God, they will never be lost. Any gains that the Lord gives to his church, any, any expansion, any growth of the church will never be lost. It means that the Great Commission will be successful. It means that God will never abandon the Great Commission. He'll never retreat. He'll never give up on his people. True believers are never lost, and the church never shrinks. One of the reasons is that when a believer dies, he does not really actually die. He continues to live. Remember, the Lord says that he is the God of the living and not the dead. The church grows even when its members die. That's why it is common to say when a believer dies that they are promoted to glory. The church, Zion, the remnant of Israel, never needs to fear that what God has done for her will be lost or abandoned. Which is why we can spend our lives for the growth and care and beautification of the church and of Zion, of the household of God, and it will never be a bad investment. Christ never loses ground. No efforts are wasted. No sacrifice that his church makes is in vain. Jerusalem's builders at the time of David, the temple's builders, they should have known that it could be lost. What they gained as they built up the temple, it could be lost. That temple could be shrunk. It could be destroyed. But the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ builds, the church, will never be destroyed. What does he say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why is it? Why is it the case that David's temple could be lost or Solomon's temple? Why is it that the, the temple after the exile could be lost? Herod's temple? Why is it that they could be lost? But Christ's, Zion, why is that that they could not be lost? He tells us in our passage, verse 5, Who's your husband? Who is her husband? Why is it that what he gains can't be lost? Who's her husband? Your maker. The creator is your husband. He also calls, he calls uh, the Lord Jesus her redeemer, her kinsman redeemer. You remember the idea of a redeemer from the book of Ruth? Ruth had married into a family that had been destroyed by, um, it seemed like by fate, by sin, by bad circumstances. Of course, it was all at the Lord's hand. And that family was absolutely desolate, in great debt, unable to even take hold of their inheritance. But there was a man 
who was willing to step forward as the redeemer of Ruth and her family. That man's name was Boaz. And at great cost, he redeemed that family. He took Ruth as his bride. And he gave his inheritance and shared it with her. This is the job of a redeemer. And when it says here that Christ, that the servant of the Lord, that God is the redeemer of Israel, that means he will certainly do these things. And what he gains for her will never, ever, ever be lost because now we're sharing God's inheritance, not the inheritance of sinful men. The redeemer's responsibility, you have to bear all the responsibilities of the family, all the costs to restore the family. Now, this redeemer of Israel, of the church of Zion, is not merely a king. He's not less than a king, but he is not merely a king. He's not merely a friend. He is a friend, but he is a compassionate husband. Friends can move on. Neighbors can move on. But husbands are never to move on from their wives. Christ is a perfect husband of the church. This is why Zion never has to be afraid, the church never has to be afraid that what the Lord has done will be lost. Let's look at our third point. The bride's house will be beautified, protected, and led by the servant. We'll find this in verses 11 to 13. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pillars I would make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your uh, walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. This is going to heaven already and not yet as well. Look at the already. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Kevin read for us that Zion, the church, the temple of God is being built right now. And what is it being built of? Peter's going to tell us that it is out of living stones. Paul gets a little more specific. Paul talks a little in specific. It is with gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, we'll talk about wood, hay, and straw in a second. But he says it is built of gold and silver of precious stones. There's no filler material. Christ promises to build his church, his temple, his family, his household, the household of this bride, giving so many sons and daughters to this bride. And he builds it with living stones, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Built with precious gems, no filler material. Items that have been purchased at a great cost. What would it cost you to build a little house out of straw? Not a lot. But what would it cost you to build a great house out of only precious jewels and silver and gold? It would come at a great cost. The Lord Jesus Christ builds his church, his family, his household at the greatest cost you could imagine, the cost of his very life. And this is how we're supposed to see the church. Gold and precious stones are supposed to also be able to withstand fire and assaults. And they're also items that have been made beautiful in God's sight. And so Christ 
gathers, he builds using living stones. And this means that the church is to see, the members of the church are supposed to see the other members of the church as precious. The church itself as precious. We're supposed to see them, not that they in themselves have great worth, but that Christ has purchased them at great cost. It also means it also means that the, the leaders of a church are never given permission to try to build a church out of people who are not part of the family of God. To welcome people and invite them to become believers, to become children of God by faith in Christ and then add them to the church. Every single person, every single person, all of the children of this family all of them are taught by God. Did you notice that? Every single one of them, all the children are taught by God. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Why is it? Why is it that they have the peace of God? Remember from last week, whose peace do we have? If we belong to Christ, we have his peace with God. Because he himself bore our enmity, our eneminess with God on the cross. That is why all of Zion's children, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus, has peace with God. And also, why people who do not belong to the Lord Jesus do not have peace with God, but remain enemies of God because of their sin. Again, we must remember here, that doesn't mean that the children of believers automatically are sons and daughters of God. The only way to become a son or daughter of God is not simply by going to church, not by having Christian parents, but believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the promise. And that is good news to people who don't have Christian parents. Because they too are guaranteed, if their faith is in Christ, that they are the children of God. They share his inheritance and his protection his love, his care, and the vengeance he gives toward his enemies who attack them. But it is a great warning to those who believe that they are the children of God simply because they're born or simply because they're born into Christian households. It is a wonderful gift to be born into a Christian household. But the only thing that will make you a child of God is by faith in the Lord God. By being a person who hears the word, right? All of your children shall be taught by the Lord. Who hears the word of the Lord and has ears to hear it. Who hears the promise of the gospel and believes it. And then the mark of somebody who belongs to God, who is God's child, is that his word can correct them. That they have ears to hear his promises. They also are given ears to hear his commands. Ears to hear his warning. And by his spirit, they obey it. Friends, that does not mean that we become God's children by obeying his commands. Far from it. We are God's children because Christ obeyed God's commands and that is credited to us. However, becoming God's children will have this effect on you that you now see God not as a stranger but as a father. A father who has authority over you and you are glad that he is your father who exercises authority over you.
Let's take it, that, that takes us to our fourth point, which is this. The servant's bride will not have enemies which could destroy her or her righteous heritage. Let's look at this. Isaiah, 40, uh, Isaiah 54, 14 to 17. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall, come, it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. To destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Thus far, God's word. Again, there's going to be an already, not yet. There's going to be an already and not yet dimension to this prophecy of what the Lord God says that the Redeemer will do for his bride, the church. We can see this in verses 14 and 15. See this right here. In verse 14, it says that the bride and her family shall be far from oppression and, um, and far from terror. You see that? But then in verse 15, it says, if anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. So we see there's an already and a not yet. And there's in the already, there will be enemies. When Christ establishes his church, his family, Zion, she will have enemies. There will be enemies at the gates, but they cannot do damage to Zion. Not one stone that Christ adds to the temple can be removed from it. Not one person, because they're living stones, not one person that is added to the church by faith in Christ will be able to be taken off. What did Christ say about the temple in Jerusalem? He said that no stone will be left on top of it, on top of one another. But for Christ's temple, Zion, New Jerusalem, the church, the family of God, not one stone will be able to be removed by Zion's enemies. Zion's enemies will not be able to rob her of precious jewels and gems, the people of God, her children. Zion's enemies will not be able to make her less beautiful. In fact, every single bit of eneminess, any, any bit of, of hatred and attacks toward the church only serve to make her more beautiful and actually serve to make her grow even more. The church is promised that when it faces the hatred of the world, it is not God's wrath. Verse 15, we see that it is, he says, it's not from me. Now, he doesn't mean that he didn't ordain for it to happen. He's not saying it's out of his hands, but what he is saying is, I have ordained it, but I have not ordained it as for your bad, but for your good. What this means is the church will often experience the wrath of men. But because the church is Christ's bride, she will not experience the wrath of God. And why is this so secure? Because Zion is very sinful and weak, so why is this so secure? What does he point to? Why is it that Zion, the church, never has to be afraid of people, who's strong people, fighting against her with weapons? Why is this? He points to his sovereignty. He says, I created, I'm the one who created the smith who makes weapons. I'm the one who created the nuclear scientists. I'm the one who created these weapons and the people who made these weapons. 
Do you think that I'm going to let weapons that I created and weapon makers that I created, do you think that I'm going to allow them to fight against and destroy me? Not a chance. God is sovereign even over the enemies of the church. I created this myth. God is sovereign even over the enemies of the church. That's one of the reasons why Zion doesn't have to fear that her enemies can destroy her. The second reason is this. Because Zion's righteousness is from the Lord. Verse 17, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. You might see a footnote that says, or their righteousness. Why is it that no one will be able to ever point to the actual church, the believers in Christ, and say to God, they are not righteous enough. You need to destroy them. Why is it? Why is it that no one will be able to, take, to talk about the bride of Christ and tell him, you need to reject her because she's not righteous enough? Why is it? Is it because, no, 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 they've got it wrong. She actually is righteous. She's actually better than you think. She's done great things. She's better than her neighbor. She's performed better than the Old Testament uh, people did. Is that why? No. It says because her righteousness is from him. And here we need to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. I know it's at the end of a sermon, and, and we're teaching theology, but we have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification means your record before God. Sanctification means the change that happens in you after you become a Christian. If you're counting on standing before God, that God will never reject you based on the change that has happened since you are a, become a Christian, you will go to hell. Because that's not good enough. That's not righteous enough. But if you're counting that your standing before God is Christ's record, then you will be saved. Dear friends, God did not just give us a redeemer to help us get more beautiful so that God would never turn his back on us. Not even close. God gave us a redeemer who lived in our place, lived a righteous life, and then gives us, grants us his record so that we can stand before God in his record, in his righteousness, and never have to fear the wrath of God because we are justified based on Christ's record. Now, those who have been justified, those who have been saved by Christ's record, who have been given his righteousness, he also, it says, teaches. He transforms us. But we're not saved by the transformation he does in us. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ. Now, I said there's an already and a not yet. The already is that though Zion has enemies, the weapons formed against her shall not stand. They shall not remove anybody from the church. And they shall not make the church less beautiful, nor can they bring an accusation against the church that would cause Christ to reject her. But there's an, a not yet. Dear friends, one day the Lord will come to judge the living and the dead. And he will remove from the earth all of his enemies and all the enemies of his bride. And so she will dwell in perfect peace. Not only will there be no enemies who can destroy her, there will be no enemies. The whole world will be like the house 
of a newlywed couple where only they and their children can dwell. No one, no rivals, no enemies, but only the Lord Christ and his beloved church. So how do we respond to this? Well, the first and most obvious way to respond is the first word of the chapter. This should cause us to sing. And not just sing out loud, but for our hearts to sing, to rejoice in this. The other way we should respond to this is to spread that tent with no fear. You have siblings in other countries, in other neighborhoods, all around the world, in your own neighborhood. You have siblings you don't know yet who are purchased by the blood of the Messiah, who he will call. There's no boundaries, no borders to fear or to respect. We can also be glad that the Lord keeps his promise, that everything we give to love and serve the family of God will not be lost. And lastly, to consider whether or not you would like to be part of the church. Be part of the bride of Christ. Be part of Zion. Some people love the idea of having peace, of, having, of living forever in a perfect world where there is no pain or suffering, as we all should love that. But they have no interest in being part of a church that has Christ as her head, as her husband. Some people would love to not have eneminess with God, not to be the recipients of God's judgment when he comes. Some people would love that. But they don't want to be his children who are taught by him. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have faith in Christ. And they're trusting in Christ, not to just escape from death and hell, but they're trusting in Christ for the prize of being the children of God. They hear that God will be your father. He will care for you and he will lead you. He will treat you as a daughter or a son. He will lead you and you will follow him. Some people hear that and think of that as the most precious thing on earth. No longer being independent, no longer being a rival, but I want to just be a child of God. Oh, that Christ would make me a child of God. Dear friends, if that is your faith, if that's what you're trusting the death and resurrection of Christ to accomplish in you, to purchase for you, then you will never, ever, 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 ever have to fear being lost from the household of God. What shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you we thank you for the gift of marriage and how wonderful it is to becoming one um, and how you've designed this as a living parable of the gospel of Christ and his dear church. And we thank you that our inheritance is not one that we could accomplish, not one that we could work up or produce, but it's an inheritance of our husband that he shares gladly with us as though we were his own body. And we are also grateful that the inheritance we earned, which is hell, that our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, took that for us in our place. Lord, I pray that you would work in us a confidence in your power over all things that you use for the benefit of the church
your bride. I pray also, Lord, you would work in us an understanding of how precious it is to be your children, to be taught by you and to follow you. And I pray that we would treasure being the ones who are taught by the Lord, treated as his children, kept and protected and guarded. Father, I pray that you would make this church a faithful bride. And that when Christ returns, even though many people would try to turn her away or or adjust her obedience, call her to other saviors, or point out something that the world thinks is ugly about Christ, her husband, I pray that by your spirit you would keep us faithful, that we would be waiting for you when Christ returns to take his bride home. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.